Please turn also to the Old Testament. Our text for this morning is Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. Begin, re- begin reading from chapter 8, verse 17, through chapter 9, verse 10. This also is God's holy word. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same fate for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with, the li- with all the living by hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten." Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our Lord God, we thank you, Father, that you have given us your word. Father, we pray that we would be humble and submissible to your word, that we would be teachable by your spirit according to your word. Father, there's many principles in this world, and Father, oftentimes your word and the world come in conflict. And we pray, Father, that we would be those who side with you, with your word, each and every time. Father, that we would not judge by the eye of flesh, and judge against your word, but rather that we would sit in humility at your word, that we would believe upon it, that we would believe not the lies of this world, the lies of Satan. Father, we pray in thanks that it is by your covenant through Jesus Christ our Lord that we know what we will receive from you, that we will receive from you your love and not your judgment. Father, we thank you that in Jesus Christ we have our hope of the forgiveness of sins, that he indeed is high and lifted up, that he is the one who is exalted. And Father, we pray that we might look forward to our eternity with him. Father, we pray that 
uh, your word by your spirit would transform our thinking, our attitudes, and that you would grant us joy from within. For we know, Father, that we worship a risen Savior, and because of that, we are justified, not by our works, but by the perfect work of Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that Jesus, uh, your Son, would be exalted, and that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Even as we come to this book of Ecclesiastes again, we're at chapter 9. And the question at hand is that uh, the work of God that is done under the sun that man cannot find out. And much of this book is written with the assumption that uh, life is focused under the sun. That we're not looking at the eternal things. We're, we're looking at the logical ramifications of a rejection of God. And woven into this is, uh, are, are, are these openings where, where it's as if the author Kohelet is saying, and because there is no life after death and there, there is nothing else but under the sun, right? And you're supposed to say, no, we have a hope of eternal life. This is not all that there is. That our reward is not merely here on earth. It's in heaven. That this is what he's trying to get us to see. It's conspicuous by absence. And so here also he addresses this matter of death. So he's, he's answering the question. right? Uh, man cannot find out the work uh, of God that's done under the sun. Well, how do we know that he's, he's going to favor us? Or that we will receive his displeasure? How do we know that? We know that because it is covenant, his covenant through Jesus Christ. Well, what about death? We see that the death comes to both uh, the righteous and the wicked. So how is that any different? And how do we know his favor is upon us? Because of how we view death. The wicked view death differently than the righteous. And that's our reminders. We must not view death the same way that the wicked do. And that transforming our view of death should then transform our view of life. The things that we do every day, it should transform our view of it. So the truth that we see in this passage, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 1 through 10, is your life, death, and eternity are in God's hand. So heed his instructions for life and prepare for death. Your life, death, and eternity are in God's hand. So heed his instructions for life and prepare for death. We'll look at this in three points. First is man's unknown state in the hand of God. Verse 1. Second, the same apparent fate of death for the righteous and the wicked. In verse, verses 2 through 6. And then third, your duty and reward under the sun. Verses 7 through 10. So the first point, man's unknown state in the hands of God. In verse 1. <clears throat> But all this I lay to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. Here, this verse 9, uh, sorry, verse, verse 1, chapter 9, verse 1, is a follow-up from the previous chapter, chapter 8, verse 17. That man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. That God is infinite in wisdom, and because of that, uh, to man, he is incomprehensible. And also that the Christian is one who trusts God with the secret things that belong to him. But some of those secret things, right, such as whether or not his favor is upon us or not, 
Those are, those are things that we wonder about. But that's part of his revealed will. He's given us his word. He's told us about the good news of Jesus Christ, about the gracious covenant that he makes with sinners such that we are not consumed. The follow-up question regarding the secret things, then, is how do you know whether or not you're under God's favor or his condemnation, which we will, we will answer in due time here. <clears throat> here he has the concern about the righteous and the wise in verse 1. Uh, it says here, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. So it's true that both the wicked and the righteous are in the hand of God. That the author of Hebrews in chapter 10, verses 30 and 31, talks about vengeance is mine, I will repay, the Lord will judge his people. Then he says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So the, the wicked, when they think about being in God's hand, that they're terrified. Because God is the one who judges sinners. Yet at the same time, the righteous are also in God's hand. Isaiah 41.10 Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will also uphold you with my righteous right hand. That it is a good thing for those who are righteous in Jesus Christ by faith... That we trust God's hand, for he is our protector, he, uh, he is our uh, provider, he is the one who preserves our lives. So the question is, how do you know of God's favor, meaning his love, or his displeasure, or his hatred is upon you? So here, perhaps the, the wisdom, uh, the Old Testament wisdom, you have Proverbs that is constantly teaching this character consequence pattern. So there's a character and then there's a consequence. You, you have a certain character, you'll end up with a certain consequence. But then here, to hear the author of Ecclesiastes, uh, Kohelet, he comes in, right? And it's not as if he's uh, saying that the character consequence structure or pattern is wrong. He's pointing out somehow questions that come up that appear to be different. The exceptions, uh, the, the things that he witnesses are somehow different. When we look at this character consequence, the Proverbs summarizes it something like Proverbs 3.33. The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. So you see there's character and there's consequence. That the, uh, the righteous are blessed. The, the wicked are cursed. There's a character and there's a consequence. The righteous receive God's blessing. The wicked receive God's curses. And, and then we look at how that pattern is manifested in everyday life throughout time. The structure that the world is currently attempting to defy to its own destruction. Look at something as simple as Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. Let every, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. 
for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Look at the newspaper. Look at the news feed on your phone. Don't let the world tell you something different. The world's going to tell you something different. The word of God here tells you what is going on. There's an explanation for what we see. The world is saying, hey, look at all these things that are happening. And what they're actually arguing against is they're arguing against God. They're despising authority, human authority. And at the heart of that is a rejection of God's authority. So are you going to side with that? Are you going to pattern with that? Be careful about doing so. Certain people are concerned about their safety. Well, here, look at God's word. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. If respect, show respect. If, if tribute, then tribute. And then you think about what Jesus says. Matthew 26, 52. The, the Jewish leaders send their temple guards after Jesus. And they, they come to him with, with torches and swords. And how, how ironic it is that they, they come to, to use a sword against the Prince of Peace. And they need a torch to find the light of the world. Huh? This, is, this is oddity. And Peter pulls out his sword and whoosh, he, he slices off the ear of, uh, of was it Malchus, right? Mal- or the high priest's servant. And then Jesus rebukes him. And he says, put your sword away. And the rule that he gives, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. All those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. So Romans 13 and Jesus' word in Matthew 26, you open up your, your newspaper, you open up your news feed. I see those two passages of scripture visibly taking place. So you look at these, uh, these high-profile deaths, they're actually explained by these two passages. Don't, don't read the, the news right away. Uh, give it a few days, and you'll see that more information comes out. And what people are arguing against is they're upset about this pattern that he who lives a life of violence and rebellion is going to die by a life of violence and rebellion. And when we look at the authorities, we look at the authorities. I, I liken it this way. I liken it this way. If each and every one of us had to slay an animal every time we wanted to have a a carnivorous meal, I think more than half the people would not be carnivorous. You understand what I'm saying? Most people don't have the stomach to to cut the throat of, of of a chicken or slay that cow or that pig if they want bacon for breakfast. I'm serious about this. And so also, along that same pattern, people don't realize that there are wicked people who are dealt with dealt with in a, in a, in a way that is, uh, that is violent, that the violent receive violence, that, that they have a violent, de- a violent end to their life. And, and the, the people who, who look at this from a sheep's perspective say, it's all unpleasant. Life is unpleasant in that way because of the consequences of sin. 
And so this is the character consequence pattern that we see. A character consequence in Proverbs, in the scriptures that are true. But then there's also another pattern that we see. Uh, the, the, the pattern that Kohelet raises in this book of Ecclesiastes. So we ask the question, how do we interpret, how do we read the factor of God's blessings? When we look at wealth, what about wealth? Well, both Abraham uh, and Haman were wealthy men. So Abraham, who was reckoned righteous uh, by faith, Genesis 15, 6. But there's also Haman, found in the book of Esther, who was a wealthy man. And he was a wicked man. So it's not a matter of wealth. Look at the wealthiest people in this world, those who are worth billions and billions of dollars, and are they righteous? The answer is no, they do not fear God. What about with intelligence? Is it the case that the intelligent are those who are favored of God? Well, when I look back at at the tragedy that happened in David's household, he he had a counsel named Ahithophel. And we're told that, uh, that his words, his counsel were like oracles of God because the man was apparently so shrewd and his, his worldly intelligence was so good that from a political perspective, uh, he was like a Machiavelli, right? That, uh, that he was very astute regarding how to get ahead politically, how to rule. He, he ruled in such a way that uh, he incited fear in people. And, and then uh, he betrayed David And he faced the consequence. He saw the writing on the wall. He knew exactly what would come his way, and he committed suicide. What about long life? Is that a sign of God's favor? Well, King Josiah was a young king who died young. But we're told, out of the kings, he was a righteous king. And then you have Cain, who outlived his brother Abel. So is long life necessarily a sign of God's blessing? Instead, what we ought to be able to say is that the sign of God's favor is that he covenants with you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Consider some of the things that we read, some of the verses we read in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, 3 through 5. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God did not come to righteous people and say, let me give you the reward of a righteous man or woman. He came to us those of us who were following the, the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and we're told that we are by nature children of wrath. If you think you're any better than those who are judged and those who deserve hell, then we don't fully understand the gospel because we haven't fully understood the bad news. If, if we think that, that we're saved because we're more righteous than those who are not saved, then we've misunderstood the foundation of the gospel. Right. 
Ephesians 2, verses 12 and 13. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who, were, who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. How do you know that God's favor is upon you? The question that you have to ask is, where are you with Jesus Christ? If you're saying, no, I, I'm, I'm doing fine. I can stand before God on my own. I, I, my, my, my righteous works outweigh my, my sins. Well, the bottom line is, you're, you're setting yourself up for, for judgment and eternal damnation. The only hope of forgiveness, the only hope of eternal life is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Christ Jesus and Him crucified. How will you be righteous before God? By trusting in a crucified Lord, Jesus Christ. Who was risen from the dead. Who lived the perfect life. And that you are, are called to embrace this promise. That you're called to embrace that which is right and true. Where is your righteousness? You should be quick to say, I have none. I don't have any righteousness. And that's why I need Jesus Christ, who is my hope of righteousness. He lived the perfect life. You're called to believe it by faith. Some people call into question this declaration of righteousness. And they say, no, no, no. God, He only justifies those after he, he, he starts purifying it. Purifying His people. Well, how do you know you're pure enough? The answer is you never will be. There's only one standard of purity. That's Jesus Christ. He declares you righteous. He cleanses you by faith. Simple truths here. God's gracious covenant with man through Jesus Christ is the only way that you know that you will receive God's favor. It's the only guarantee of favor. You look at the covenant of works. Through Adam. Adam failed. Living by righteousness. Or living a, a perfect life. Through Adam. That Adam failed. And once that failure, one sin happened. That option of righteousness by works is gone. There's no more possibility of it. All who are trusting in themselves are condemned in this covenant of works. He who trusts in any other will end in death in eternal condemnation. For those outside of Christ, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But for those of you who are trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, for eternal life, there is hope that God's favor to you continues. Just as God said in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that his, his favor, his kindness to Saul, the king Saul, came to an end. But he said that when David sinned, he would punish him with the rod of men. But his favor would not end. Perhaps some of you have wondered, I've sinned. Is God still going to love me? He promises to love you because his word, his covenant says he will. He will, he will chastise you with the rod of men. He'll chastise you with the hand, by the hand of a father. But his love for you is secure because it's secure according to his promise that never fails. 
So this is the first point, man's unknown state in the hands of God. We have the second point, the same apparent fate of death for the righteous and the wicked in verses 2 through 6. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil that is do- this is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. Here in, in these verses, what we have is seems like everyone Every man dies, the righteous and the wicked alike. And there's, there's various ways to slice it. So in verse, verse 2, he says that the good and the evil, the righteous and the wicked, they're the clean and the unclean. To him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. So however you look at it, The person's going to die if you're clean or you're unclean. You swear or you don't swear. You're going to die. And he's saying that part of this evil is that all die. That there is death that happens at all. When you think about death, you ever witness someone's death? You realize that, that there indeed is loss there. That there's death that we see in our, in our households among uh, those in the church who have, who have died and gone to be with the Lord. But outside of God's special revelation, uh, how can we even understand? How can we even explain the pain and the suffering of life? Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So outside of what God has told us in his word, beginning in Genesis, ending in Revelation, when we just witness life and the loss of life, this is why people come to the conclusion, how can there be a God? Look, look, look at my father, look at my mother, look at, look at my grandparents, look, they died, and, and how sad that is. And, and this is what happens. I've known people who are in the church. Their, their father lived 80, 90 years, and then he died. And then the man had said, I can't believe in a God anymore. So, well, why not? He said, look, look my, my dad died. It's like, well, I know that's sad. We grieve with you, but what? You're trying to explain the bigger pictures of life, and you're saying that there's no God because he took your father. Well, first of all, that doesn't even make sense, right? If you're believing there is a God, he took, his, he took your father, well, then how are you saying you're not going to worship this true God? Isn't death the consequence of sin? I mean, is isn't, isn't this his... He was a believer. He, he's, he's going to glory. You should be happy for him. Even though you're, you're grieving his loss, you should be happy for the man. And so here, if we understand the consequence of sin, or, or what man actually... Well, what did man do? How has man offended God? Well, it's rebellion. We have to understand what we did wrong. What went wrong... Before we can understand the judgment for, for what we did wrong. 
Without understanding the fall, death might seem cruel. But when you come to understand that our sin is rebellion against God, it's a, a, a handshaking of defiance against God, then you realize, well, wait a minute, death, death is really what we deserve. We deserve that death. But instead, the world believes that man is inherently good. And yet they have no explanation for all the evil that goes around us. In the case, man's inherently good. How do they explain this? Madness, then, is rejecting the free offer of the gospel. So here, this is what the author Kohelet says in verse 3. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. Madness or insanity. So here, what you have, you live in rebellion against an earthly ruler. The earthly ruler says, oh, you rebels, come meet me. I will, re- I will give you my grace. Whatever, whatever crimes you've committed, they are forgiven. Who would not embrace this offer? Is that not madness? Is that insanity to reject the offer of such a king? Wasn't this happening on an eternal level, a spiritual level, that the great God over heaven and earth is saying, you've offended me, you've you've sinned against me, and I freely give you terms of peace, and not only peace, but of grace, of eternal blessing. Are you going to receive it? It is madness to reject it. It is insanity to say, no, 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 I'm not going to receive that. I'm going to work for it. I'm going to work for every ounce of it. That is insanity. Indeed, that is insanity. Verse 4. Here he says, But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. What he's describing here, what he's describing here, is that those who are living still have hope. Those Those who are dead, that their opportunity is gone concept there is what you bind on earth, you bind in heaven. What you lose on earth, you lose in heaven. There's no opportunity after death to hear the good news and be saved. There's only two places. There's heaven and hell, and there's no movement between the two. And here, it's saying that those who are living, that they have an advantage. They know they're going to die. And the summons is prepare yourself for death. Prepare to answer to God. This is where some of you who grew up in other continents, in other cultures, have an advantage to understand this this illustration. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. Here, in our strange culture, dogs sleep in our beds. Right? They're a member of our family. We're strange. We're very strange. But you go to any other culture. A dog is a dirty scavenger. It eats dead things. And to the Jews, they thought that the dog was an unclean animal. And go, go look at some of those videos. Go look at some of those videos of, uh, of the, the African wild dog. And you know they and the hyenas and the lions, I mean, they're, they're these predators. They, they steal from each other, right? Dirty animals. And... And the understanding is that the lion, on the other hand, this is a majestic animal. 
And here, they're comparing the two. That on the rock bottom is, is this dirty dog and how people who let their dogs lick their faces. Oh, boy, that's, that's bad. That's bad. <laughs> Don't do that. Pick up worms that way. And, and they're saying, the, the, the Jews are understanding, it's better to be a living dog on the bottom because you can still prepare for death than a dead lion where the, this majestic animal, you could be this reigning king, but you're dead. There's no hope for forgiveness or eternal life. You could be that scoundrel on the bottom, that scoundrel of a dog, of a person. But you know that death is coming. Be prepared that you will answer to God. So even though there's the same apparent faith of death for the righteous and the wicked, ultimately the view about death is completely different. The righteous view Jesus Christ and they see that death is the means by which we are united to him perfectly and eternally. Death is a doorway, it's a passageway. For example, you're going on this great vacation. Death is like the jetway. The jetway onto that plane that takes you to Disney World or, or wherever, you like, wherever you like to go. Tahiti or... You see, death is this passage. You, you're going to heaven by death. That's, that's the jetway you walk through. But for the wicked, that's like the judgment chamber. You're, you're passing through these locked doors ready to, to meet your judge and your maker. Ready to receive the condemnation where there are no more courts of appeal. There's only God. There, there's, he never gets a judgment wrong and there's no higher court. Here, the wicked, the wicked are those who view death as the loss of everything that is dear to them. That, that those who I love, I, I, I can't see them anymore. The, the, the things that I work for, I can't take them with me. That is how the wicked view death. Did you catch that? That is how the wicked view death. If you are righteous in Jesus Christ, you must not be viewing death in that same way. That you're trying to grab and hold on to the things of this life. Death, by faith in Jesus Christ, means letting go of the things in this life. You know what? These children, someone else will guide them. The Lord who is taking my life, someone else will guide them. Someone else will raise them. The things that I enjoyed in life, someone else will enjoy them. The scriptures tell us that. Someone else will enjoy them. And we cannot view death the same way. If you're righteous in Jesus Christ, by faith, transforms how you view death. So that's the second point. The third point, your duty and reward under the sun. In verses 7 through 10. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. And he will give you it that he has also given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in shoal to which you are going. Here. This is verse 7 through 10. This is one of those carpe diem sections. So, so throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, 
that there's he sees the day or moment of clarity, right? So he he talks about reasoning from a human perspective uh, without God. That's that's much of this book, but then. Every so often, he throws in this passage where, where he, he says, ah, we come back to a moment of clarity. This is one of those. And this one is different in that he actually, instead of reasoning, he's actually giving instruction. These are imperatives. These are imperatives, he's saying. Go, eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. <clears throat> I want you to think about what he's saying here. This is in contrast to Psalm 127, verse 2, of eating the bread of anxious toil, eating the bread of painful labors. God has called us to joy. And perhaps you're saying, hey, this book of Ecclesiastes, didn't he just say that it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of mirth? What is he? He's contradicting himself. No, he's not. Going to the house of mourning so that you might know your life will come to an end someday. When you see others buried, you will be buried too. And that you prepare for life or prepare for death by how you live your life. Here, what he's actually saying is if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, if you know God who is Jesus Christ, it changes how you eat your bread and how you drink your wine. It's no longer eating the bread of anxious toil. It's go eat your bread with joy. Because you've consecrated it by prayer. God, you've given me this bread. I don't know where my next piece of bread will come from, but you've given this to me, and for that I rejoice. And that my life lived in such a way that one day there will be no more bread to eat, and I will die, and I will be with you forever. And it will be good. In other words, joy should be the tenor of your life. For Jesus is risen indeed, and he has conquered sin and death. We should eat our bread with joy. <clears throat> Children, do you ever have do you ever have a bad meal? Have you ever forced to eat things that you don't like to eat, like broccoli or spinach? or cauliflower, or steak, you know, whatever you don't like. Or perhaps it was prepared in, in a rather rushed way. Huh? It was rather rushed, and you don't like it. I want you to think about something. About this, go eat your bread with joy. <clears throat> when you have a bad meal, have an eternal perspective and say, this is a bad meal. Admit that. Don't, don't tell the cook that necessarily. Admit it yourself, this is a bad meal. But you know what? I look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Because it's going to be far better than this bad meal. The Lord Jesus has prepared it for me. And then at other times, when you say, wow, this is such a great meal, you're going to bring it back again to the eternal perspective. You're going to say, the marriage supper of the Lamb is going to be that much better than this meal. Huh? And, and there, we think about, oh, in times of suffering, in times of, of, uh, of disgust of a bad meal, you're thinking eternally, something better ahead. And then something good, a good meal, whatever your favorite meal, ice cream for dinner, huh? 
Dad, you ever serve your, hey, we're going to start with dessert first, right? You do whatever you want in that way, and hey, that meal, marriage supper of land would be that much better. And God has already approved what you do in verse 7. Of course God has approved of what you have done in Christ. We're told that Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God has prepared that work that we will do. He has saved us by so great a salvation so that we might be equipped and that we might do good works for his glory. Not only does he know it, he's the one working through you. Philippians 2.13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Of course your works are approved. And then white garments, verse 8, white garments and oils of oil of gladness. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. You ever meet people where you ever meet people who are where the only color they wear is black? And you start to wonder, oh man, it's like you're going to a funeral all the time. Right? Go to a funeral all the time. Well here. Saying that we're going to be wearing white. White white was the color of celebration. White was the the color uh, of joyous occasions. Think about it for a moment. The U.S. Navy gets it. When when they have their formal events, they're wearing their Navy whites. White hat, white jacket, white pants. They understand it. White garments are that of celebration and festivities. Oil was for the anointing, the head and the body. And in desert environments, is really dry. Very dry there. Skin cracks easily. So people would anoint themselves with oil, scented oil. The, uh, the woman who anointed Jesus' feet with the, uh, the bottle of nard, a very expensive uh, perfume. This, this was what's referred to. And that we ought to be willing to anoint ourselves. That we ought to take care of ourselves. That we ought to be willing to celebrate. Because there is reason to rejoice. That Jesus did not remain in the grave. And that enough is reason for us to rejoice every single morning. If that's not reason enough, there is no reason to rejoice at all. For he himself is our peace. You have peace with God because of Jesus Christ who reigns supreme. We have in verse 9, Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. I ask you, those of you who are married, are you enjoying life with the wife or the husband whom you love? Are you enjoying it? Or are you living as roommates? Are you living as roommates? You understand what I mean by that? I'm going to get a little R-rated here. You can correct me before your children if you want, but I, the scripture talks about these things. Are you living as roommates? Is there conjugal love going on? Simply put, are you enjoying the wife of your youth, the husband of your youth. Is there enjoyment? Is there excitement in your marriage? Is there a companion that you're married to, that you love? 
Are you eager to tell them good news of things that happen in your day? Or are you just going through the motions? Let me ask you. When your children each turn 18 and they leave the house, you look across the table one day and you say, I don't know who you are. I'm telling you something. That is pretty late to come to that realization. If that's the case, then you're not enjoying the life with your wife or your husband. There ought to be joy. There ought to be satisfaction in your marriage. I warn you, these are dangerous times. These are very dangerous times. This is why I've said repeatedly that Jesus' words were watch and pray so that you do not fall into temptation. Are you? Are you going to doubt me? That I'm repeating Jesus' words to you? Watch and pray that you don't fall into temptation. Enjoying life with the wife whom you love. I warn you, adultery, adultery doesn't begin with that look at that person who's not your spouse. That's typically here for men. For women, it's not that conversation that you have with someone. Adultery begins with not enjoying the wife whom you love. Because there's a lack of satisfaction here, then the eyes look elsewhere. You understand that? The best defense against adultery is not cutting off every avenue of things that you can look at. The best defense is enjoying the wife whom you love. That is the best defense. If that's not happening, then I'm saying, you're already in danger. You're already in danger. We're told here in verse 9, because this is your portion in life, and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. <clears throat> For the worldly, this is the best that it will be in life. That we try to go for the gusto, live for today, because there may not be a tomorrow. But in Christ, understand that the perspective is eternal and then temporal. Because Jesus has paid it all. Jesus has prepared a place for us that changes what we think about our eternity, but it also changes what we think about our present life today. So this reward, the reward that we have is eternal, but the reward, we get a foretaste of that in this life right now. So that if anyone says, you know what, my life will be better with that other woman, I'm going to tell you, you're wrong. That is, that is the lie of Satan. You terminate this marriage and you go to that one. Why are the divorce rates for second, third, and fourth marriages? The divorce rate is increasingly bigger. right? If, if, the, if the divorce rate for a first marriage is about 50%, the divorce rate for the second marriage is about 70%. And, and, and it gets bigger and bigger until it reaches 100%. Don't believe those lies. Satisfaction is in what God has given you. And, and we also have to address singleness. Singleness here. Well, what about singleness? There's blessings to singleness. Someone asks you a question, hey, uh, do you want to hang out tonight? Well, a single person doesn't have to ask permission from anyone. Huh? How about that? Isn't that great? 
It's a good thing to have to ask permission. Men, don't forget to ask permission about that. I, I need to remember not to, not to forget to ask permission still. And, and so life goes on, right? There's singleness, and that's, that's a good thing. Single so that you might serve the Lord and be fruitful and, and honor Him. And it's easy to look at, well, if my life would be so much better if I were married. Please, don't do that. Right? God has given you a certain lot. There's a certain lot in your life. What God has given you is best. Right? What God has given the challenges of a, a married woman with ten kids, it's going to be different than a single woman with no children. And we can't say one is better than the other because God is the one who gives. And so here, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. You know what this is saying? Think about practice. Children, you ever go, go to baseball or soccer practice, and, and you just go through the motions. You're, you're just, you know, you're dragging your feet, and you're swinging, you're swinging your foot, but you know what? That's how you're going to play in the game, if that's how you train. That's a warning. If that's how you train, right, that's how you will play in real life when the game comes. If you're going to do anything, don't do it idly. Don't do it in a lazy manner. Do it to the glory of God. Whatever your hand finds to do. The Lord calls you to be a carpenter. Our Lord Jesus is a carpenter. I sure would think that his carpentry, those chairs, be exactly straight and they're comfortable. Right? They're not going to be rough. I'm not going to get a splinter in my rear end from the chair that Jesus made. Correct? Everything that you do. We're going to do to His glory. You're going to be called to be a carpenter. You better be the best carpenter. You just desire to be the best carpenter. And so also, whatever it is He calls us to do, do with all our might. If it's worth doing, it's worth doing well. It's worth doing to God's glory. And so here, what do you understand? The reward is eternal. But He gives us a foretaste of that reward in this life. How do you know that God's favor is upon you? His favor is upon you because if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, He sent His Son to die on the cross. He didn't hold back His beloved Son that He will graciously give us, give us all things. That's how we know His favor is upon us. And that you will face death. I'm sorry to break to you the bad news, but you must view death in a different way. Death means not the loss of everything you hold dear, but the beginning of the very thing you treasure. That is union with Christ to be with Him. And that sin would be no more in our lives. We view death differently. And so also you and I must view life differently. That there must be a life of joy and satisfaction. We no longer eat the bread of anxious toil. We eat the bread of joy and we put on the oil of gladness. There's a celebratory mood to our life because Jesus has risen from the dead. And He was raised to life that you and I might be justified. Our God indeed is good, and it transforms everything that we do and think in this life as we prepare for eternity. May we go to our God together.